Thank you for downloading the Southeast Economics Podcast. If you like more information about Southeast Economics and what we can offer, go to the website www.southeasteconomics.co.uk. Hello, and welcome to the second edition of the Regulatory Economics Podcast. My name is Rob Toll. I'm the host of the podcast. For this second edition, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Bill Emery. Bill has recently left the Office of Rail Regulation, where he's been the Chief Executive for the last six years. Bill's very kindly offered to provide his insights into issues affecting the railway industry at the moment. It's worth mentioning that the first edition of the podcast featuring an interview with Dr. Harry Bush has been downloaded 1,700 times so far. You can listen to that interview by visiting our website, which is www.southeasteconomics.co.uk. That's enough about that. Let's move on to the interview with Dr. Bill Emery. So a very warm welcome to Dr. Bill Emery. It's a great honour to be joined by Bill today. Prior to the Office of Rail Regulation, Bill was a director at Offwap, and he spent many years as a senior manager in Yorkshire Water, an experienced regulatory professional. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. So we're going to talk about, first of all, your time at the ORR, Bill, and then we'll get into some of the, the issues that are affecting the railway industry at the moment. Mm-hmm. So when you think back over the last six years, what are your reflections on your time at the helm of the, the rail regulator? Well, I think the uh, railways have come on a long way in that, the, the six years I've been there. Um, in huge improvements in, in performance, significant improvements in efficiency from network rail, a far greater degree of partnership working, and the railways continue to develop its approach to safety, such as we have the safest railways in, in Europe. Um, that said, that uh, there are still huge challenges that the railway faces, and um, that those have been highlighted again both in our recent periodic review that set Network Rail some huge challenges, and in the recent Rail Value for Money study. So, thinking about the Value for Money study then, so Roy McNulty's obviously published his recommendations in the last mm-hmm. month or so, very far-reaching suggestions in there. What's your initial impression on so what Roy's proposed? Well, I think we uh, we were joint sponsors of the Rail Value for Money study, and uh, we we saw it put some flesh on the kind of hypothesis that Britain's railways were uh, didn't offer value for money compared to their their uh, international peers. And our work with Network Rail has been endorsed by by Sir Roy, and built on and to show that there is plenty of scope for improving efficiency. Mm. Uh, and his uh, so I think he's proved that, and everybody accepts that. He's then developed a whole series of reasons for that, and clearly there is a uh, misalignment in incentives between the train operators and Network Rail and elsewhere, uh, even down into the supply chain that is contributing to uh, that inefficiency. There is also a uh, very close involvement in the railways by the government and possibly even by the regulator, which is, which is again, a, uh, an area that needs to be tackled. Mm. Roy's, uh, Sir Roy has uh, put in place a whole series of recommendations. It's now up to the, the industry and the government to respond to the, the challenge of improving value for money uh, and develop its solutions for that. And I think there's, a, there's a good signs that the, uh, the railway sector will, will actually rise to those challenges. There's quite a lot in there, but maybe just thinking about some of the specific recommendations that Sir Roy's made which affect regulation in, in particular and other that may affect the job that the ORR does. There's a suggestion of potential joint ventures, which I take to mean the infrastructure company Network Rail working much closer together with the train operating companies. So rather than the separate contractual arrangements they have at the moment, it would be some form of vertically integrated company. 
What's your take on that suggestion, if I've interpreted it correctly? Well, I think that Roy has suggested that may well be necessary, but I think there's a, there is a, there's some way to go in terms of whether or not that would be the kind of model that, to adopt across the railway. Now, there'll be we have certainly identified in our work that there is a need for much greater collaboration and effective collaboration between train operators and the route management. And Network Rail's devolution is a step in that direction. We could probably see that that, uh, that could generate substantial improvements in value for money, both in enabling Network Rail to do the work better, that it needs to do do it better, and with less disruption to train operations, train operators uh, to do similar. It is possible, I think, and no doubt the government will consider whether or not they should go further into a kind of joint venture in certain parts of the railway. Um, of course, Europe is pushing in a slightly different direction to maintain a degree of accounting separation between uh, an infrastructure manager and the, the train operators. There are also issues that uh, uh, in, we have a, a, a railway that uh, many users use it and many train operators use it such that within a, a closer collaboration between a, a dominant train operator mm. and the local infrastructure manager, then you've still got to protect the... Uh, those train operators who are going across it, those uh, be it freight or passengers or even kind of the open access. Yes. So uh, this is this is a, an interesting idea, um, which will probably be uh, tested at some stage. But I think the the focus at the moment is to improve the kind of collaboration. Hmm. I suppose the success of that suggestion depends on the desire of the stakeholders to get involved. What's your sense of the mood of the industry? Maybe you can give a flavour of whether the, the desire's there. Well, I think the, uh, and it's one of the things that uh, we've been very pleased the way Roy has gone about his work, is that to, to build a kind of uh, uh, understanding across the industry as to, as to what is needed. And uh, he suggested the senior leaders in the railway, be it network rail and train operators, freight operators, and like form a rail delivery group that has actually been formed and the meeting the first meeting was last week and we've heard that that was a a an interesting agenda and, a, and an interesting meeting and there is a lot of uh, work going on throughout the industry to pick up the baton that Roy has put down and we've put down for network rail and come up with solutions the industry itself has a huge opportunity with its uh, initial industry plan for the next period review which it is going to be submitting into ORR in September, um, which uh, will be the real chance for the industry to demonstrate how it is going to tackle the value for money challenge, and possibly more particularly, what it is saying it needs from government and from the regulator to enable that to happen. One dimension of the vertical integration, which I'm still working through in my own mind, and it's related to another suggestion of Sir Roy's, which is that there may be a move towards a single regulator in the rail industry. That implied to mean that the ORR would take over responsibility of some of the franchising regulation that the DFT is currently responsible for. How do you see that working out? Well, I think that's a useful suggestion and something that uh, we think, uh, in my time at ORR, we thought was a would be a sensible way of, of uh, ensuring there was an alignment of interests between the train operator and network rail being regulated in in a similar way under a... In a more under a license rather than under a contract. Yes. Um, and, the, the, and we think that, that that could provide some real benefits. Those are issues, of course, for the government to decide. Uh, and, uh, and I think that the, the way it would come about is that is uh, more incrementally than, than, than a, a big bang 
as it's um, brought in either franchise by franchise or parts of it were moved across to ORR, and I think this government is, is, is ready to do that. ORR itself will have to uh, rise to those challenges because it will need to up its competencies to, to oversee the performance of train operating companies. And, of course, it will then be uh, uh, directly in the, uh, uh, in the line of sight of passengers who are using the train operators' companies, the trains themselves, to uh, um, complain to the regulator. Um, I think the Office of Rail Regulation is up for that task. It's a matter for the government to decide to uh, pass that over. So I guess many of Sir Roy's suggestions depend on the government's attitude and we'll watch with interest to see how they respond. I think we will. I think one thing certain, the coalition government is uh, uh, has seen a big prize, and it is a big prize, uh, cutting uh, more than a billion pounds or so out of the uh, the railway's costs, offering the opportunity for a uh, a railway that uh, offers better value for money, um, provides the opportunity of the taxpayer to support a growing railway, and for passengers to have uh, stable or imp- or lowering prices. But obviously, we will want a railway that actually continues to improve its performance and delivers all its work in a safe way, both the people who work on the railway and the people who travel on it. So thinking about the reduction in costs, which I guess is one of the key messages that flows throughout Sir Roy's recommendations. In terms of incentives to remove costs, thinking about network rail in particular, and I'm conscious I'm, I'm guilty of picking and choosing the issues here that interest me rather than mm-hmm. perhaps those that are the, at the top of Sir Roy's recommendations, but there's always been the suggestion that Network Rail was a, a company limited by guarantee and not for dividend. It has different incentive properties to companies who are more conventionally financed. And Sir Roy said that's something that should be looked at again. What's your take on Network Rail's constitutional arrangements? Is, is there a way that they could be organised differently and would that affect their incentives to improve efficiency? Clearly, I mean, in, in the other regulated sectors, you have a, a, a powerful stimulus from people who've invested their own money in these companies who are have a real vested interest in, in driving those the management of those companies to to deliver on regular requirements and do it at lower costs so that they can gain. In railways, the money goes round and is kept within the system. Um, so what do we do with network rail is we, we I mean, as a regulator, we have uh, thought for a long time that uh, for, the gov- for network rail to move away from the, uh, the financial indemnity which the government has provided such that it borrows money on its own bat and therefore bondholders and banks would have a vested interest in demonstrating that they are holding the the company to account for the monies that they have lent to it. Uh, Not quite as strong as an equity shareholder, of course, but uh, it is a step in the right direction. Um, We have spent a lot of time in recent um, months uh, working with the the Remuneration Committee on Network Rail to to align the Management Incentive Plan, uh, picking up on what, how equity-based companies actually... uh, drive the their own management and uh, the, the new plan that uh, Network Rail's Remuneration Committee have come up with uh, picks the best of that. That is, That means that there is a powerful stimulus on the, the executives in Network Rail to deliver as best they can what is in the public interest, which is a, a very high-performing railway, but one that actually uh, um, delivers ever-improving efficiency. I'm an outsider in the railway industry now, but just looking at the high-level results, Network Rail have improved their efficiency quite considerably over the last control period. So 
obviously the existing incentives actually work. It's just a question of do you want to alter them slightly? Well, I think the uh, certainly Network Rail, um, uh, the rail regulator in 2004 said so Network Rail a 31% improvement in efficiency. They achieved 27, uh, losing the plot a little bit in the last couple of years. Our work and uh, something that I'm really proud of was is, is uh, effectively generating international comparisons, which were used in earnest in the 2008 review, has exposed the fact that Network Rail are between 30 to 40 percent mm. of the pace of the best in Europe, um, and we set them a challenge of a further 21 percent improvement in this five years and clear the whole of it early in the next control period. Um, Network Rail are, are uh, on the pace for doing that, and our kind of report that we published in mid-June actually highlights that they are making good progress on that. Moving on slightly from value for money and efficiency issues, and we, we touched on this slightly earlier, one of the final things I worked on when I was at the ORR um, is devolution. Mm-hmm. So the transfer of powers from Westminster up to Scotland and Wales and to a lesser extent to some of the PTEs. How has that gone in the last five years and has, has that been a success story in your view? In Scotland, I think it has been a success story. You got, it, it has enabled the Scottish Government and its uh, agency, Transport Scotland, to, to invest more in the railways up there. And they've helped, opened new lines linking uh, um, Glasgow and Edinburgh. And they've got quite a major lots of investment in the railways. And, uh, uh, and as such, there is a successful uh, collaboration between Transport Scotland and uh, the ORR, and even with the ORR and the, and the government ministers in Scotland. So it has... Uh, been a successful venture that in devolving uh, the kind of prices or price limits and and not quite setting up a network rail Scotland but uh, giving them a a much greater say over the railway matters which is what Parliament actually provided for. We would think it would be sensible for um, local administrations to take a greater interest in these things be it uh, in the the Welsh Government or in terms of uh, some coordination across the uh, PTEs either across the Northern Way, or as they used to call it, or the north, north of, north of uh, England, or even in the Midlands, or even down into uh, the uh, round about Bristol area. These are because, in fact, our railways are a whole series of local railways providing local services for people. So there may be a blueprint there in Scotland for how things may evolve in the future. There's, there is there is clearly a an example there as to what to how it could work and. Uh, and as these things are, that uh, not that the railways need to be, have different solutions for different parts of it. Yes. One of the issues tends to be a, a uniform solution to the whole of it is probably um, will not satisfy anybody. Greater separation as well would permit more use of um, comparisons, I guess. Although you did mention that the emphasis has been more on international comparisons. Well, I think that certainly the um, comparative competition when you've got a monopoly supplies is, is in uh, as worked a a treat in, in water in my 15 years when I was regulating water. That, so that was a the powerful stimulus to drive in improvements, in, both in service and efficiency. Um, Network Rail, of course, uh, can do that internally. Um, it's interesting in the 2008 review, its internal comparisons would lead to a, uh, a scope for improving efficiency of just at 10, 10 to 12%. The gap to internationally exposed a very much bigger gap and hence, uh, I think the the real challenge for network rail and the real challenge for the the railway sector as a whole is how does it compare with the best in the world? And I draw a comparison with uh, between railways 
and say why if these costs why is that not the same challenge that we put on to the water industry the electricity industry around because the infrastructure UK have identified the kind of scale of costs are uh, um, systemic across the whole of our British economy that needs tackling if all our sectors are going to give value for money for passengers consumers and taxpayers that leads quite neatly into my next question Bill so the idea behind the podcast is to focus on generic regulatory economic principles. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about mm. railways. Thinking about regulation in general in the UK then, because you've been around pretty much from the start, you might say, how have you seen it change over the last 20 years and how do you think it might or it should change in the coming period? Well, I think there's certainly uh, it has uh, changed in the, in the from the setting up systems in which I first when I first joined Offwat in early 1990 that was we had to establish a, a, a new regulatory model which uh, Ian Byte and uh, colleagues and I has helped in, helped in doing that I think the big um, steps were taken in terms of um, driving for improved information within the regulated companies um, that was based on robust data that enable them to understand the basis of their decision making because improved decision making is what is needed in these companies aligned with the long-term interests of consumers um, that together with a particularly on the the asset-based industries a drive for improvements in asset management are the, are the two things that have been a common thread through my experience on the, the regulatory side and uh, the water industry is a little bit ahead of the railways in that, although we, I'm pretty pleased and one of the things I'm proud of in the last five years is is getting Network Rail to really understand what the, the gap is between where they are on asset management and what excellent really means and get them to commit themselves to, to address that quickly. Um, and a third area I think that uh, we've worked at on regulation is incentives yes. and really looking at what is, what is uh, um, driving the managers and people who are working in these industries um, and finding if you can align through the systems and frameworks you put in place that with the public interest, be it in value for money, be it in service. And that is, uh, sometimes that's through pushing for uh, more market instruments, sometimes it's just actually through the, the more sophisticated uh, approach to regulatory incentives from review to review. So it's an evolving beast, regulation. Well, it's an evolving beast, and it's been a very interesting beast. It, you, we have created a a niche sector for professionals, because that's it's essentially separated that out from the from government in, as, as people who are slightly outside the kind of day to day of the political cut and thrust of ministerial departments, but clearly set with a with a drive to Im, um, improve these industries uh, and deliver more for the public. That's an interesting thought because when I was at the ORR it always struck me that many of the people there were, were proud to be railwaymen. Um, similar thing at the CEA where they were proud to be aviation people. For me I always felt my industry was economic regulation, a separate industry which transcends different sectors, and hence the idea behind the podcast. Moving from one sector to another there are a lot of transferable skills. You talk about asset management, you talk about incentives, you, you talk about a focus on passengers or customers. These are all things, and you talk about information. These are all things that are a common and a common need across all these sectors. So I think there is uh, there are real interesting roles for people who are going into regulation, both as a regulator, and then even back in within the sectors themselves, understanding 
the kind of framework upon which these companies are going to operate under and uh, what they need to do to become ever more successful in those directions. Yes, indeed. Well, that's been very thoughtful, Bill. Thanks very much for that. The final question I was going to ask is uh, just in terms of what you have in store next. You've been at the coalface, if you like, for a long time now. What are you planning to do? Now well, I think I think on? after 21 years as a as a, as a as a kind of top executive in the in the in the regulatory field, I think I've uh, come of age in that sense, and uh, and uh, I, I would like now to kind of move on to another part of my kind of career and and do some uh, and help help enterprises um, from my experience and uh, skills uh, help them rise to the challenges in a kind of more advisory or non-executive capacities and that's where I want to see my career going for the, for the next uh, 10 years or so. Okay so we'll still see you around then? I think you should still see me around or hear, hear from me occasionally although you probably hear more from the enterprises than I think yes. rather than uh, as I go back into the kind of uh, background a little bit. Okay so thanks very much to Bill for a very interesting and thoughtful interview. Thanks also to MacGyver for his help in producing the show. We're definitely in the market for feedback on the podcast. and We're also very interested in ideas for future topics. So if you've got a policy you'd like to promote or an idea or suggestion you'd like to come on and discuss, please get in touch by emailing podcast at southeasteconomics.co.uk. If you'd like to know more about the podcast or more about Southeast Economics, you can visit the website, which is www.southeasteconomics.co.uk. We also have a new Twitter address, so you can follow our tweets at SEEconomics. It's all one word, SEEconomics. Thanks for listening. I've been Rob Toll. Please tune in to the next edition.